Welcome to Robot Friends, the podcast that is a war crime. Episode 41, Eigenrobot vs. Onio. So, yes, that I guess means we're recording now. Hey, all. Um, I think last podcast I did, I didn't actually introduce the guest, so um, apologies for that. But uh, tonight I'm here with Onio at Mono Device. And uh, I guess, what, what's it going to be tonight? I think give some pretty strong ideas of what you want to talk about, but I'm happy to go into depth there or alternatively just um, kind of ship post via vo- via voice chat. What do you think? <laughs> I think both are completely fine. I also wanted to say how it felt to me to observe this whole thing with Ukraine occur as somebody who grew up somewhere outside of America and had somewhat of a similar, I guess, situation, not completely similar. And I'm not going to say I had anything like what I, we, you, I see people you, experiencing right now, but I, yeah. I, I was about to say, are you about to suggest that you have invaded a country? <laughs> no. Oh, well, actually, no, I have not yeah. myself, but there was like, I grew up in what were the remnants of Yugoslavia as it was falling apart. So yeah. Was, so I was trying to note similarities between that and this, and there is probably some like tragic Slavic kinship I'm feeling between yeah. all this. So uh, I figured I'd note how it feels from that point of view. Yeah. So what's, um, I think that's a good place to start. Like, okay. So you're in the U S now, but you're from one of the Yugoslav territories. Um, and I don't know exactly how old you are, but it seems like probably you at least saw some of the aftermath of of the breakup in in what ninety one. Ah uh, yes, so w- when I was I was born right at the end of the communist Yugoslavia, and after that, what was left was the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, which was only made up of Montenegro and Serbia at the time, and the two of them trying to regain its status as you know the status that the old Yugoslavia had in the international standing, but kind of failing to do so. Yeah, and wanna, since um, then I have seen mostly like, yeah, what has happened since Montenegro went independent, since Bosnia, since Kosovo, things like that. Yeah, do you uh, do you want to give us maybe just sort of a brief history of, I don't know, like post-war Yugoslavia? I definitely, I mean, only superficial stuff. I mean, you know, I have a sense of like the general shape of the history, but you know, as far as the details are concerned, and you know what. W- sort of where was the input to everything that happened in 90, 91 and the, the rest of the 90s in all the, the former, former Yugoslavian territory? Well, that's a good question. And I hope I don't do it too poorly because I haven't had to voice it, I think, ever actually to anybody except for random people who would ask me about it, but I could do it just on the spot as much as I know. Um, yeah, yeah. It's fine. It, We're not going to hold you at any of this. I mean, since, maybe review at parties, but. <laughs> since uh, World War II, basically, and, and, and its aftermath after the Red Army liberated these territories and the partisans kind of fought to push back the Nazis as much as they could, they kind of re- remain in the power the, and formed form the Communist Party of Yugoslavia and incorporated all the territories like Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, uh, Montenegro. And Macedonia. 
I'm not saying Kosovo just because at the time it was part of Serbia. Clearly, it's not anymore. Yeah. Um, and that all seemed to have held together well. There was a big spirit of, and I think this part is very similar to Russia, of having been those that stood up to Nazis and fought. Some sort of tragic yeah. sense of having pushed through the darkest times and emerged on the other end. The unity of that, I think, held everything together for a very long time. But of course, yeah. there were other enmities that just remained. Some horrific things that happened during World War II, like I know that some in Croatia joined the Nazis from Germany like fairly quickly on, like embarrassingly quickly on. They had co- <laughs> they had concentration they had <laughs> they had concentration camps for Serbs, um, and a strong sense of pride was developed over that time. And I know that from my father and my grandfather who would always speak about these things and my great grandfather who also was a child during world war one. So he remembered that and told me about it. Yeah. Uh, That wasn't as big of a deal, I think in the Balkans as much as world war two was, but it definitely, he, he does remember it. And he has like his, he had his military cards of like belonging to some like organizations at the time that he fought uh, the invaders. Um, Okay. Wow. So yeah, this so this is super interesting to me too because I didn't um I wouldn't have guessed that. Like it it almost seems like my vague sense is that that was all Austro-Hungarian until World War 1 at which point everything just kind of split apart. Um it's it's a little bit surprising to me that independence from from the empire was not a bigger deal in terms of national identity. Um, it, it's kind of difficult because the other half was the Ottomans. So these two groups were influenced by different cultures, largely like the part of Serbia, Montenegro, Macedonia. This was much more influenced by the Ottoman culture. And then okay. the Bosnia, Croatia, Bosnia, obviously, since the annexation, but Croatia before that and Slovenia, they were very under, very much under the influence of the Austria, Austro-Hungarian Empire. And I happened to live in an area where the two clashed. So I have the influences of both in my history and my upbringing and my language. Because if I speak Serbian, which is the language I grew up with, I will say Turkish and German words regularly within it. And Italian words, because we were also close to Venice. So, Right, right. Wow. Okay. So um, yeah, it was a big mix of all of that. Cool. So, okay. So, um, so end of World War II, there's this you know, they're, they're these partisan groups and they end up more or less holding power as the, you know, wave of, of Nazism recedes. But then um, how does that end up as Yugoslavia? I mean, there was uh, honestly for this entire period, the only thing that I really remember was Tito, if I'm even pronouncing that correctly, um, ending up splitting from the USSR and becoming sort of an independent um communist, I don't know, potentate, but I don't remember the exact circumstances of how all of that played out. Yeah, I believe they would, and I'm not saying you said something wrong, but I believe they would find the friends that they ever even split. They never would, even would have considered themselves as a part of USSR in any meaningful way. Stalin yeah, okay. definitely pushed for them to be closer. And I remember recently from reading the Stalin book by uh, Kotkin that- yeah they had like some significant plans in the twenties about helping up uprisings in Germany and Yugoslavia. That was their big deal. 
for helping oh, wow. the communist regime to like establish itself within those regions, but clearly they didn't do that at the time as much. Yeah. Well, they did try to help uh, German one um, a lot because they were super interested in that because Germany was such a big deal. Yeah, but yeah, the, <laughs> German- the- <laughs> it's it's funny to think about like a his period in history where where Germany was a big deal because that. <laughs> I mean, I know exactly what you mean, but it just doesn't feel like it is the same way now. Anyway, sorry, keep going. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, and then they, uh, well, after winning, it was the partisan groups were noted. They had such popular support because they were the only ones who didn't capitulate to Hitler when he, you know, declared war. Because the government of Serbia and Croatia and all of them, they kind of just gave up immediately. But the people did not, and then the like the insurgencies and guerrilla fighting and everything ended up birthing these like partisan groups that would just grow over time and fight both Italians on the south and Germans coming in through Croatia and through the uh, western parts. And yeah. I think their popular support has allowed them to establish like basically the to organize all these territories into one and play up this whole like South Slavic, which is what Yugoslavia means. It means South Slavia, the South Slavic spirit and unity into one. But obviously there had been problems from before. And I believe that over time, and especially as the party power veined and Tito died, all these things kind of, you know, fell apart because a lot of it was just being held up through this centralized authority which was kind of not as strong as it seemed yeah okay so so that does feel like maybe kind of an obvious parallel between ukraine and russia where you know there's this kind of unified spirit but also maybe some kind of underlying division between the you know really the metropole in this case in moscow and you know then this outlying region and and suddenly there's not that same kind of force pulling them together yeah yeah, so you will find people who are basically the same people with various, like, is, I don't know if it's like narcissism or small differences or something like that, but yeah. they are definitely like very aware of their own differences and disliking each other for them and having a history of problems together. But they're also, in the eyes of foreigners, they're very much alike. Like, you don't really know what the difference is between like the Serbs and Croatians, even though they're very aware of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's interesting. I I have great I think great grandparents um on my mother's paternal side. Um and I think my great grandfather was Croatian and my great grandmother was um Slovenian. And um you know, honestly it yeah, it's it, it sort of felt like that to me. I mean like you know, sort of the same difference. Not not a lot of really clear idea of what even the distinction would be. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure like genetically that you wouldn't find. Well, you probably would. You would find like different like Turkish and Western European influences on the two sides. Yeah. Something like that. Although, I mean, allegedly 23andMe is able to distinguish between uh, Slovenians and Croatians at least. Like they were very direct about saying, yeah, you know what? Slovenian, you know, roughly from Ljubljana. I mean. Yeah, I can. Okay. I can't speak much more to that. I'm not quite sure, but 
they are all be, be certain they're all very aware of it. Yeah. Slovenia <laughs> is like the most EU country of those and they have they are the others kind of dislike them for it, I believe. Interesting. Wow. Even they were kind even of the first ones. They were kind of the first ones to join Europe. But again, they were so Europeanized by that point. They were so close to Austria and Italy and under that influence that how could you blame them? That's what they know. Yeah. Well, on the yeah. other side, it was like Turkey under, under the Ottoman Empire. So Turkey was against, uh, sorry, not Turkey, Serbia was under the Ottoman Empire and they were basically against every Western influence, whether of their own will or under the Ottoman will. or So yeah. they, have, they are formed <laughs> as something that's in opposition to the West. Did they, did they end up joining? I can't remember. I mean, I know Turkey did not, and they're maybe not going to, but... Uh, join what, sorry? Uh, did did Serbia end up joining the EU? I mean, this, this is how far no. behind I am in the... Yeah, yeah no, okay. they did not. Montenegro is currently trying to... Croatia did join. They were the last addition from those countries. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. And my family is interesting because my mother is Serbian and my father is Croatian. And then we grew up kind of in the middle of the two. Yeah. <laughs> With families definitely having like issues. But ne- it was never voiced or it never came to like a conflict or something. But they it was definitely palpable in the air. Yeah. And I would always celebrate two Christmases, for example. One Orthodox, oh. one Catholic. Oh, I didn't. I hadn't realized there was that division across Korea. Yeah, makes sense yeah. though. Yeah, they follow still the... Which calendar is it? So I don't make a mistake right now. But Orthodox Christians follow the other calendar. I'm forgetting the yeah. name. I, I think the Julian, maybe? I believe so. Yeah. Um, that is really fascinating. I mean, I, I, you could almost go and say, okay, that seems like it's, um, you know, completely alien. But I could imagine certain cultural groups in the U.S. having a sort of a reaction to each other. And I mean, I think they do in some ways, like, you know, it's not, I guess you would call it ethnic in the sense that, you know, it's not necessarily racially based or, you know, really even related to like different, you know, specific ancestry groups for sure among, among white people, but like, you know, a borderer, like Puritan wedding that that's going to be, it's going to be awkward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, meet the parents was about this, right? I mean, I think something like that where it's, yeah, you know, just, just some awkwardness and cultural differences. I was thinking of what remind, what made me reach out to you and want to like, think about this whole conflict in a specific way. It yeah. was, uh, well, first of all, I remember I, I read the thread by, uh, Camille Galiev. Everyone's read his threads by now. They're very popular during this whole invasion arc that we're going through but he's written some interesting stuff definitely i can't speak to the veracity of it all but one of the things was about the identity of russia as this country that has defeated nazis and how much of it has been built up around it and i I was trying to remember from my own childhood and that was all of it it's crazy like i sat there that day and tried to remember like what did we learn in second grade first grade third grade and it was all stories like children's stories about like how some kid outwitted the Nazis. Those are all like our hero stories. I had dreams. I remembered I had dreams as a kid of like dying fighting Nazis. And I loved those. Like those were like fun dreams or something like tragically yeah, yeah. heroic dreams. So, That's so, we, so yeah, that is like 
Very much so. That's one thing people should know that we love <laughs> tragically like fighting for our causes, which is probably why I'm going to probably end up here like tragically dying socially as I defend Russia or something. <laughs> <laughs> I dare you. I dare you. Go ahead. <laughs> but um, so I was thinking that and then I was thinking about another thing that one of my friends said, because I was talking to uh, several people from Twitter like Rune and Finn and PVD. Yeah. I was talking and trying to present this side from a different point of view of somebody who's kind of frustrated with the West. And one of the things I remember one of my friends saying as we were growing up, he said, everything I want to do, I can't. I don't know what he said, but that stuck with me. Like, that was so profound and abstract. Like, why did he ever get this sentiment? I've, I, I would never hear somebody in America say this. You know, like everything yeah. I want in life, I cannot do. And he really felt this. And a lot of people do feel this. So I was trying to think of like, how does this play? Like, is there some sort of mentality of these countries where they believe, where there's like the whole way of thinking and expecting and building your identity in the world as opposed to the rest of the world and, you know, relative to the future and to the past, is it different than it is in America? And it's very different. Like, first of all, we don't have like a future thing where we look up to some progress that we can reach as much. We have more of like a past pride. Yeah. Which is very different from America. And another thing is a sense that you can't really do things because we were never able to. And I hear this from people when they, like we watch the, uh, if we watch the World Soccer Cup, we start winning. And then the first thing everyone will say is something along the lines of like, ah, yeah, but we're going to lose like next time. Like it's expected constantly. They don't have a sense that they can win. Many, many people. Man. I think younger younger people are growing out of this somewhat as they like, but most young people are like me who are like interested in doing something else and leave. So the countries are getting brain drained and left with people who are not like that or left with probably like the bravest people who stay there and think, well, I'll change this. We can be better. I was not that brave. I have some friends. I was, I have some friends who were, but they're like, yeah, they're, they're much more confident and brave than I am, I think. I have one that, like, since the Montenegrin government fell recently, the the guy who was in power while I was there for 20 years, he was, you know, replaced with elections and the new government was imposed. They were having a very hard time. And one of my friends now works and tries to maintain it, but he works just insane hours. It's like running a startup country that nobody believes is going to make it. Man, wow. So, but then I was thinking, why do they have this sense? And if I go through European history of Montenegro, specifically or serbia it's like two countries that have been just frustrated it's people who like came go back to like the old slavic you know migrations from the polish regions and german regions they would come to this area establish something and then over time as they would try to pronounce themselves as some sort of entity within the world to be recognized by others which is very important for countries it would always be some foreign power who says eh, i don't think so <laughs> So that's fine initially. Like you're you're kind of like a small presence. You can't make it. But then the Ottomans come and they sweep over you, you know? Uh-huh. And you lose everything. But they're not even there. And nobody believes you that you don't quite... You're not an Ottoman. Even though you're part of their empire in the eyes of everybody else. Even though Ottomans are not there, you live in your own like mountains and you live your own life. And all the traditions are maintained as they were. Um, but no that doesn't work for them. Like they don't get to feel as they, as if they matter in the world somehow. 
as they go outside, we have like literature about this, like Montenegrin, like royals and nobles going outside and always being like, what is this? Like, who are you? Except for Russia. Russia is always a place where they would go and be treated as like their own. And this is where you'll sense like centuries ago, this relationship starting between Russia, Serbia and Montenegro. So it's kind of like deep in this sense that it lasted forever. Plus they recognize each other as like Russia doesn't have these relationships with like Czech Republic or some other random, you know, Slovenian, uh, like uh, Slavic country, but they do with these two very further away regions for some reason. Right. Like they don't have this with Poland. Why don't they have this with Poland? Why didn't Polish Royals go to Russia or something. Why did like the ones from Montenegro and Serbia go? And I think it's a, a big part of this, like, trying to establish yourself and not being able to due to like constant interference of others. For for example, Montenegro would free itself of the Turks finally. There would be two Balkan wars between before uh World War One, through which they would like basically push out Ottomans. Yeah. And then there would be like some council meeting together in like Paris or somewhere random, you know, some Western thing. And Montenegro, Montenegrin representatives would ask for the country to be recognized and it would not be. And we've learned this. As we re- read history, we learn these things over and over and over. And over time, and then the Germans come and you don't get to have like a thing. You don't get to be you. It's somebody else comes and then somebody else comes. And then finally, like you're so frustrated. You can't do a thing as a country you don't have an identity in the world you just have it amongst yourselves and you're constantly been warring and then the second you're free you have been so pent up and frustrated that like it explodes it becomes like a big mess of infighting and and then you get like put down for that again you know like the 90s happen hyperinflation happens i remember that somewhat i remember my mother having like 500 billion like denarii bills that she would pay stuff (laughs) For stuff for. Yeah. Um, But you get this sense where like people from younger people are kind of losing it. And that's sort of good, but sort of tragical because they're kind of also forgetting what it all used to be about and what the old people talk about. But everybody who's lived through Yugoslavia and everything, that was the first time they felt like they had a say in the world. You know, Yugoslavia was kind of powerful. Tito would go and talk to presidents of America and he would say no to Stalin. That was like a huge deal. So they have this sense that they're constantly frustrated and they can't do things. You try to do something, but you have to accept somebody else's ideals. Like if you're a loser on the world stage as a country, loser, I mean in wars and things like that. Yeah. uh And and then the West expands around you with its ideas and everything. You always have to ask it, you know, to let you do stuff. Yeah. So you have to be like, Oh, we kind of, we want to be engineers. We want to develop. We want to build things. We want to build iPhones. And then the West is like, okay, yeah, build iPhones. And we start building iPhones. And they were like, you know what? We have all we know is like, oh, let's build it for like collective espionage or something. And then the West is like, oh, wait, I won't let you have the supplies unless you, I'm making up an example now. But yeah, you yeah. won't have the supplies unless you have our ideals about how to build all this, you know? And then they're like, but wait, I don't know anything else. So it gets cut down. And that's how you always feel. Like we try to do this, but then there's like sanctions and we're told no. And somebody else gets to decide if we get to do a thing. So I mostly, I, I like the West. I specifically moved here because I very much prefer it. But I, for these types of things, I like to put on like my other type of personality that I still have within me. Of all these people I remember, and I try to remember what it's like to be them, what it's like to be frustrated, what it's like to build something 
and not be powerful enough to do so and only be punished for when you're bad, but not be helped when you're trying to fix it. Because you don't, you don't know all the things. You can't develop some ideals without developing yourself, but you don't get to develop yourself without having those ideals. And you're constantly stuck in a frustrated mode. And I bet in a large part, like Russia feels like this. Like they have territory they have lost. They have a very powerful enemy. Like I have more like white pill in America now since than ever before. Like they're not in a good state as a military, as a country. But they, I bet they have the, their prides. They have things they want to do, but they don't get to do them because every time they want to do something, we convene, you know, a meeting about it. About it. So, and that's fine. I ultimately want these ideals to win in many ways, but I am trying to accept that these people are like there's something that's dying there, and we're saying like, Ugh, like just go die away. I don't want to look at you. Like, just be either like me or don't exist. And no, first of all, nobody admits it, which is very palpable everywhere else. Like in the East, it's palpable yeah. that the West does not want you. But it also won't even look at you unless you're making like a giant problem about it. So they have like, they're like, I want to exist. I want to be on the stage. I want to make something out of our people, out of the country. This is not like Putin himself. This is like a mentality that Putin can tap into or... Some yeah, leaders, yeah. some leaders can tap into these Balkan countries that are very frustrated about all this. They will always be able to bring up these rhetorics because people do feel frustrated, like somebody has taken something from them. It's not always right. They have like done so much to themselves that it's very hard to <laughs> blame anyone else. But in some weird way, it's like if somebody gets destroyed, you either help them or you like look at them as you tell them, "I don't want you to exist," but. We're doing kind of a more rude thing here and being like, eh, I don't even want to look at you, to be honest. I wish you weren't. Yeah. And that's that's a sense I get through all this. And then when these conflicts happen and then people start memeing about it, it's like there's a thing that's really happening, but then it gets like exported out into the American memeplex and becomes like Captain Ukraine and things. And I believe those threads like that Anton a guy who complained about it, how he said called it cartoonish and stuff are feeling this frustration of like not quite recognizing what it is. Like, for example, when the conflict started in, uh, in the nineties in Yugoslavia, uh, it was supposed to be like conflicts against like a Yugoslavian army, which was then at the time made up only of Serbia and Montenegro was suddenly called up to like go fight Croatia. Weird. Right. Like, are those different people? I don't know. My father's Croatian, but he lives in uh, Montenegro. So he now has to go and fight Croatians. Also odd, right? Uh, My uncle, he just wants to be like a mechanical engineer. He wants to work on stuff. He doesn't want to do this, but he gets called up to fight. And they have to fight each other because they're like two different nationalities. And it's just, you know, it's just a mess because nobody's Captain Serbia or Captain Croatia in this. It's just a big sad mess and nobody gets to win it really. But it has been so frustrated and pent up for so long that it explodes into a disaster. <clears throat> and it tries to revitalize itself. It tries to like make itself relevant on the world, world stage. And the world stage doesn't really care. The world stage has moved on. And these people are old news. But nobody has like the decency to look at them and tell them, like, you should not exist. It's more like, be quietly stop existing away from me, if you can. That's a sense I think they get in a very, very large part. And I was trying to voice that, I, I believe, with all this. Yeah, no, that was, um, so I've mostly been trying to sit quiet and 
you know, occasionally say things to let you know that I'm still here, but, um, that was, uh, pretty heartfelt, you know, and I think good for people to hear, you know, I mean, when it's so difficult to adopt someone else's mindset and it's very easy to trick yourself into thinking that you've adopted it just by like thinking about it from one level removed, but actually letting yourself kind of um, actually adopt something close to that point of view is, is really difficult to do. Yeah. Uh, and thanks for listening and everything and letting me like vent here, but I was mostly watching all this from the sides and not feeling happy about any move. And it was yeah. mostly dismay that some people were too happy about it. I cannot feel happy that like sanctions are going to decimate Russia. And then somebody shows those videos of like Ukrainian mothers not even knowing that their sons were there, which I don't know how that's good. There's like yeah. a good sense about it. Like this was good. This is like a bad war. I feel even better about it, but it's really bad because now you get to punish their mothers who didn't even know this was happening with sanctions and everything. So it's kind of like just bad all around. Yeah. It's, it's not even, it's not even like, it doesn't exactly feel like the punishment part is necessarily right like I, I could imagine that they were all happy to know that their kids were okay what what makes me more what makes me feel bad about it more directly is just um not hurting mothers per se but but using them as instruments or as objects to you know attain a propaganda win and uh, okay yeah, I that's know. what i meant uh i i, I said yeah. it clearly i didn't mean it was punishment to show them that their kids were in ukraine i thought i meant punishment was literally to like destroy their economy their pensions and things like that and then as a way yeah. to get the sons to come back it's kind of odd it's not a thing to yeah. celebrate it might be a necessary thing but it's definitely not a thing to i don't know i yeah i'm also not too much against the way america handles all this but i i think america is very successful because there's always a nagging guy who is opposing a viewpoint and i am yeah. this time going to be the guy who's going to oppose it no i i think it's really good and i'm glad that you're here and not in like czech republic where you know maybe this puts you in jail for a couple of years which weird really also, yeah, that they're doing that yeah um So what, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what you think of the United States reaction to this. I mean, you're describing the viewpoint of, you know, somebody in Yugo, one of the Yugoslavian countries or, you know, um, to an extent, you know, that that transfers maybe somebody in Russia or, or Ukraine, depending on what kind of angle you take with it. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned there's that um, split between EU countries and non-EU countries and Yugoslavia now. And I could see sort of a parallel between, you know, say Serbia as Russia and um, Ukraine as something more like um, Slovenia. You, you know what I mean? Like that yeah. kind of an east-west drift in, in Euro affinity. Um, yeah, so, and so I'm like, wondering how much Ukraine is on that, like, Slovenia axis of this whole thing. I don't know. I don't have a good sense anymore because they are currently much, much better at presenting themselves that way than Russia is as presenting the other point of view yeah which has also been a black bill on the whole russian troll agency russian internet troll like where are they now i oh, don't know what they're doing right right <laughs> yeah no it's it's ridiculous um but yeah I, I i mean like i never put a ton of stock in that and i'm glad that's maybe being put to rest now but 
Um, but so like just just given these stances and like perspectives, how do you think the US is responding well or badly? Or man, just just how do you think the United States is responding well at all? I mean, you, you said you mostly like the way that we operate, but I do. One thing that I'm just like weirded out about mostly is and that's what what when I messaged about this, why I brought up the father from Full Metal Alchemist. Because yeah. I was thinking about it like how weird it is. I would watch all this happen and talk to people in real life. And watch the memes then and the vibe reels on TikTok. And there's such a split of talking about peace. And then the vibe reels are so aggressive. It's like destroy everything. U- US military is the biggest. It's like there's some pent up aggression that's like manifesting itself somewhere else. And it's, it's, I don't know if it's healthy, if it's unhealthy. I don't know what it is. It's just insane to watch. It's like the country has tried to like make itself very peaceful and progressive, future oriented, but everything that's actually not that cannot just disappear. So it ends up as like some TikTok egregore that's like asking for blood. And then all the politicians are like looking at that, I feel like more than they are at what people want when they're calm. And they're responding in kind with sanctions and with sending weapons. And it's really weird to see. Yeah. The only way is that I don't know if anybody is aware. I think Putin is fighting that and not like he's fighting like this thing of the social media combined with everything that we feel hidden that we do not account for publicly. And he's facing that. Yeah. When did you come, when did you come to the United States? 2009. Okay. It's like way after war on terror had been winding down. Um, Yes. Do you, do you have a sense of what it was like in the United States on September 12th, 2001? I do not have a good sense. No, I would only read news that were very, very heavily skewed against it. Yeah. Okay. So basic, I mean, I'm not sure even the skew is against it is, is undeserved depending on what it was. I mean, just like overnight, it was like a, a switch was thrown and the country was completely overwhelmed by bloodlust. I mean, people were barely able to restrain themselves on TV talking about how hard we we're going to blow somebody up. And, you know, like the, the, the kind of, you know, destruction from the heavens that the U S military was going to bring to bear on, you know, whatever. I mean, in that, in that case, it was, it was bin Laden and, and the Taliban, but, um, I mean, it was, it was practically medieval and I don't just mention this as criticism. Um, but, but more just as a real case in point where the United States gets, pretty bloodthirsty about wars when they first start a lot of the time. And it's only a certain kind of war, I think, but once it gets going, like people lose it. And do you think this, this reminds you of that period right now? Yeah, not as intensely, but yeah, I'd say we're like maybe 50, 60% of the way there. Um, you know, once it, once it gets to the point that large portions of the population are calling out for clearly insane things to be done by the U.S. military, you're kind of in that territory. I mean, yeah. like, you know, setting up a no-fly zone over Ukraine yeah. or just going in and, like, you know, attacking Russia, tactical nuclear strikes just to, you know, get things sped up. I mean, like, clearly insane stuff. And, and fortunately, in this case, the establishment seems to be putting it down pretty well. But... um yeah, I mean, after 9-11, I think the, the editorials that were being published, like, 
discussing the question of whether we should be torturing people were, I think, well in advance of how much we actually were torturing people at that point. Like, yeah, people, people just absolutely lost it. Um, so I, I sort of see that happening now, um, which is I'm, I'm mostly negative about. Um, I think it sort of pushed us in a direction where we've been able to, you know, synchronize sanctions in a response quite a bit more than I was expecting going into it. Um, yeah, that was where, very surprising. It was way more swift and rash than I would have thought. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I think that sort of thing is good to the extent that it gets you to make changes to respond to something like this that that would otherwise maybe be very difficult to implement. But at the same time, I mean, it can very quickly go too far and and people can do something stupid. And I don't don't even know that it's just a U.S. thing, though. I mean, there's the the August madness of um, 1914, where I think there was the same kind of vibe, except it wasn't just the United States. It was everybody in Europe was, you know, getting real, real psyched up to murder each other. Yeah, yeah, they definitely did. Then they like killed a million of each other in the very first month of the yeah, world like war. Just, yeah, it was it was something crazy. Um I, I don't remember the distribution of the deaths, but like I mean once I mean the first month of the war was really maneuver heavy. But I could imagine it being, yeah, a quite a lot of death on all sides, even though I don't recall the Yeah, the I numbers this I mean mostly the, from Blueprint for Armageddon. I believe it was like something around a million in the first month of like actual conflict. That's just, that's nuts. That's, that's just completely unreal. Yeah. I mean, we would have to be at what, like, we're a week in, we'd have to be at 250,000 dead. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, that would be, I cannot imagine that, to be honest. And especially, I cannot imagine that with news constantly transmitting it. Yeah. Because these are oh, post-fact calculations. Yeah. And I, I mean, like, it, it also kind of reminds me of the the first Crimean War. Uh, do you think we're going to call this the second Crimean War? I kind of wonder. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I wonder. But, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Dep- but, I guess it depends on how it plays out. Yeah. It, uh, it reminds me of the first Crimean War where, like, that was the first war where they had telegraph reports. And, uh, there, I mean, there were tons of scandals about it in the UK. I mean... Um, huge overhauls of the army and the way that soldiers were treated because their families were getting these real-time updates about the conditions the soldiers were living in. And the government had been able to get away with it before because, you know, by the time that news traveled before, like they weren't getting any of these kind of gory details. But in Crimea, I mean, there were journalists embedded and reports coming back all the time. I mean, Florence Nightingale was active, I think, and, you know, taking stock of the quality of medical treatments for um english soldiers and you know by the end of it there was a i think a revolution in the way that the military of england operated just because of all of the the complaints that were coming in as a result of this real-time reporting and you know with this it's not anything like it is now where there are you know millions of phone cameras distributed and ready access to the internet and video game footage that has nothing to do with the whole thing. Of video game footage. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. And, and also the ability of people to like constantly have a feedback loop built in where they constantly respond to this all. And people yeah. who make decisions read all of this sentiment. Yeah. 
I don't know yeah. what's going to come out of that. That's the thing that's the weirdest about all this. Yeah, I think we're in unexplored territory. I mean, what do you what do you think the world looks like in a year? Like, forget the map. I'll, or maybe don't accept to the extent that it's important. But like, how has society changed in a year? Can you even imagine? I cannot. I, I've been sitting here for days trying to see how this goes. I wish we had more people who were savvy enough with, I guess, the, reading the public opinion and what not to read and what to ignore and what to listen to. But I don't believe we have that. Maybe some of them. We used, I think it used to be better. Um, the, there was definitely an age of journalism where there were people who were writing think pieces about changes in, I mean, if to say nothing else, like changes in vibe. And now, like people have stopped doing that. It's all all the same fucking story over and over and over again about you know whatever woke stuff or whatever else. And there hasn't been there hasn't been any ability to move on from that. But maybe, I mean, maybe now people are going to be permitted to tell different stories. Well, the thing for me is that it's so easy to say a fake thing and talk about the nuclear war and talk about uh, different types of restrictions you would like to apply and how you like invade and everything without any really thought to it. I've seen somebody talk, for example, um, I won't name the account because it doesn't matter and I don't fault them for this, but they wrote a, a tweet that said something like, I'm currently outside of the US. I'm kind of worried about the strikes about the nuclear strikes and everything and i will come back when i see the situation settle down a little bit and i read it and i had like a sense of like whoa are people like taking this seriously what's happening and then below their reply to their own tweet was something like oh no jk i'm just on vacation and i was like oh my god (laughs) this is gonna be like how many people do stuff like this where they ship post about yeah you know i honestly i did get a pack of uh potassium iodine yes like i mean i don't know what to do do with it if it's like a disastrous thing, I don't know if that's worth pursuing really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like really hard to say, right. Um, I feel like my odds, I've, I've thought about this before, but I mean, you know, I feel like my odds are good once we get moved in a week or two, um, you know, an hour outside of a second tier town and, and in the center of America, I mean, like maybe it's worth preparing for after the strike, but I mean, like realistically, yeah. I, it seems crazy to me that something like that would kick off. But, yeah, I would but have you to, also I would have can't to... quite know for sure though, right? Because like you don't know what the vibe is going to be. Like you don't know how things are changing and it's very hard to predict it. So Yeah, and the vibe is moving too fast, like uncomfortably fast. From yeah. ooh, Russia Russia literally took over everything in the first day to oh no, they suck to I don't know, like I can't, I had to like distance myself that first day. I was very much connected to everything that was being posted. And yeah, but then I thought, okay, this is crazy. I'm having way too many emotions about an event that's not developing as fast as my emotions are. So I should kind of step back and watch a bit from a distance because I cannot do this. I cannot contribute to this madness and I'm contributing to it. I go online and I write things and people see them. We're guilty of war crimes, basically. <laughs> I feel like we are. <laughs> or war ideas with your buying up <laughs> idea. <laughs> but I seriously get like a sense that sometimes stuff escapes our corner of Twitter more than I am actually aware of. Like Rune yeah. and the word cell thing is a very, very clear example, but I have a sense that much more escapes than we're aware of. Yeah, I think I mean I had a coworker who 
who knows power bottom dad and volunteered him as a like that doesn't know him though right like only in a parasocial sense like oh yeah i know his account pbw and <laughs> it's like i i wouldn't have guessed that he would be the the most obvious pick for a guy in tech but you know it makes sense yeah, I don't know how to read the influence and the vibes online anymore. I'm like really yeah. shuffling that intuition that I've had. And I think it was wrong. Okay, so what, what was your old intuition? Well, that it's kind of like I, uh, the, that we're kind of looping between ourselves mostly. But yeah. clearly things are reaching escape velocity. And this corner of Twitter contains or at least has the eye of many people who have much more power and influence in society than I realized. Yeah. It's weird yeah, that's to nice. see. It's, it's very strange. I mean, what tips me off is that they recommend the same books. That's where I start connecting them in my head. When like, uh, P marker recommended that book, ancient city, you know, uh-huh. by De Coulange to you. And I was like, wait a second. I remember Moldbug recommending this same book book on another podcast. Yes, <laughs> that's how I like connect them all. Like, do they talk about these books somewhere? I wonder. Yeah, man. The uh... <sighs> what fraction of people in the commentariat do you think have read Moldbug? but refuse to admit that they've read Moldbug. Hmm. I don't know how many read it. Uh, actually, probably a few. I mean, like Iglesias for sure, right? Yeah. Like he he yeah, Steve Saylor. Yes, yes, for sure. I, I had assumed he had. I mean, Moldbug was on Tucker Carlson. I assume now he has been read by some people who are not even, you know, tangential to us. Maybe. I don't know. His, his writing is pretty narrowly narrowly cast um okay i'm actually curious about this um do you think um no way trump would have read Moldbug? do you think no, marjorie think so. marjorie taylor green Moldbug? <laughs> i don't know i don't even know if that would be like a black pill or, an, or a white pill on her if she did. <laughs> Amazing. i bet oh okay 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 i bet bill clinton has read Moldbug. Oh, okay, interesting. He probably read. Ah, uh, hmm. Wow, that's kind of blowing my mind to imagine now. He he might have. I would put like 50 percent odds that he had read it. Do you do you think Clinton goes and shit posts? Like, I don't think this is discussed, but I wonder if he does. Like. He's a very he, high verbal guy. He loves, I mean, like he just loves getting into it, you know? How old is he now? I guess that's a relevant factor somewhat. I don't know how much energy he has for keeping up with all this. Yeah. I think he's in his, in his mid seventies and he, and you know, like he didn't, it seemed like he liked to get into it in an earnest way. Like there's like, even though, you know, he was clearly full of shit, his mode of engagement was fundamentally earnest. And um, it's interesting you I picked him because I'm like the most primed against him. Oh yeah, fuck that, man. that it was just bombings yeah, and pictures yeah, of right. him and Hillary on TV constantly as I was growing up. So it was it, that that one's definitely the two of them are super super in my like child memory as villains. 
It's weird that yeah, I know, well, the, you know, it's weird that I know the name Wesley Clark, who was the general yeah. of the NATO fleet at the time. Like, why would I know right. that as a child? Yeah, that's messed up. I, I remember some of these guys from childhood, but I mean, I was weird, you know, and I think even wow. there, it wasn't until maybe the late nineties that I was, that I was coherent enough for this. I don't know. I, I, I sort of divide my consciousness of the world into pre Durant and post Durant. <laughs> where where I started I started reading Durant in um uh when I was 13 and I mean after that I just realized the world was a much bigger and more interesting place than uh than I'd really understood before that uh by the way is he the one that wrote Caesar and Christ he is right yes okay. yep I liked it that was a good book yeah uh it's um what, why did you start there out of curiosity? Oh, uh, where? Uh, on Caesar and Christ. Because he did, um, I want to say, 11 volumes, some of them with his wife, Ariel. And, um, oh, probably Caesar and Christ. the last one I re-listened to. Oh, I got I see, the audio book and I was using it as like, I got tired of podcasts I didn't want to listen to. So I was like, what do I want to listen to? Probably Will Durant or something like that. So yeah, it ended up yeah, being yeah. Rome again. Yeah. <laughs> the, ancient the later, Rome is my safe space. Yeah. <laughs> the I I really liked the the ones on um his arc from Age of Reason Begins to Enlightenment to Voltaire to Rousseau to Napoleon. Okay, I guess that's like five books. But that that arc, I mean, he really went out with a bang. That that last set. Wait, was, how did you like the, the Napoleon one? You really liked it. I've never read that one, but and I saw some more like negative criticism, like, but it was probably like Wikipedia, you know, critical yeah. reception. He didn't really get it or something. I, yeah, okay. I don't know what the hell the critics are talking about. I and you know, I'm not a Napoleon scholar at all. Um, those those people are weird to me. But I, I mean, like I. He he really had good passion for the subject and coverage of it. Um, it. It was a bit different than the other ones because you could tell that Durant actually really liked Napoleon and spent a lot of time trying to figure him out as a person. And that had never occurred to me as, as a thing to do, that you would go and just try to understand some specific person from history in in a complete way, like you might understand a friend or the way that you know a family member experiences the world. Oh, I love when they do that. He does that often, I think. I think he always yeah. hits a lot of emotional points about different characters. Like, uh, was he the one who was recounting uh, Gaius Marius crying at his like friend's trial to like yeah. move to move people and get him like set free and stuff? He would always hit these points that I don't think I've seen from others as much. But I definitely have a yeah. sense of like I feel what these persons are like when I read Durant. People people don't talk so much about the character of historical figures anymore. Like, what was it about this person that caused them to be able to do this thing or that thing, or that led them to make such and such a decision? Like, it, I, I wonder if that's something that fell away once, or or at least you know, at the same time, the great man theory of history is falling away, right? Like, there was somebody with this name who was participating in an event, and that they they made this decision, but. Like there's something hollow about that specific person being there, and they're not bringing anything of themselves to history. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I'm trying to think if there's anything modern that I read recently that 
and feeling like there was a hollow part to trying to understand how a person would be. No, I've only read like biographies. Like the one that I read, like the last was the Stalin one by Kotkin, and that was very, very deeply into what kind of a person he was and yeah, what his and motivations okay, would have been. I may be talking myself out of this. I mean, there's there's other stuff like um, Chernow. I mean, with Hamilton and Washington, he's very. I mean, it's it's primarily a biographical approach to history. Maybe, maybe that's just what I like. I mean, it maybe maybe a lot of history is non biographical at this point, but there's. I mean, Durant is extremely biographical. His his history is less a history of peoples and more a history of, of of individuals. Yeah. Yeah, I think he got me really when he was talking about Christianity establishing itself in Rome and talking about different saints, uh, sorry, different apostles and how they would communicate with the emperors. And there's definitely more of a zeal than I realized to like be a martyr. Yeah. When you go through their correspondence. Like they're very specific about this. That surprised me the most, I think, from that. I think with stories like this, it almost feels like I wonder if one reason that people have sort of fallen away from Christianity in a broad way is that they don't really have any examples of people who would go and act in that specific way. You know, like it's very hard to imagine the mindset of a person or the reception of somebody with the mindset of, of a of a martyr in modern times. I've spent now since reading that I've spent a bunch of time imagining what it's like to be those people cannot do it. Very impossible to want to be some of them like to want to be crucified, to want to live like this and to be very specific about like, Oh yeah, crucify me, but crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy. Like this is like a very, very weird way of being that I have zero sense of imagining okay however people being people being christian is one of the other things that is like establishing itself more in like regions where i came from yeah which is interesting to me like the more they are kind of desolate some of those regions become more christian more anti-west more uh depressed yeah um Mountain Goats, 1 John 4.16. Very good song about this, I think. Mountain Goats. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know whether people are... Yep, this is it. Um, so it fantastic song, fantastic album. Um, it's really sad that uh, John Darnell is, is a twit on Twitter. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's a story of a guy being led to martyrdom at the hands of lions, so the jaws of lions, I guess. Um, okay, I think I have it open. I'm going to it. listen to it. Yeah, go for it. Can we play it? I'll probably get kicked off if we do. I'll so do it. Not do I will that. probably play it as soon as we're done. I have it open right now on the side with Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, like maybe maybe there are just certain mindsets and like ways that you can like exist and interact with the world that I mean, it just feels alien, right? Like the idea that people could like want to die for a country in a really, you know, uh, patria 
whatever it is, it's, uh, you know, a, a, a fit and beautiful thing to die for your country. Um, yeah. Yeah. And in like, so many different people, ways and to wanting, wanting to like end your life out of shame. Another like yeah. Roman thing to just be so prominent. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I, I had mean, this example, actually I was talking to somebody about this whole like thing with Russia and there's something like older with something warrior-y and older or something prideful that's kind of dying. And I was trying to come yeah. up with an example. It's not quite perfect, but I was trying to come up with an example of what it's like to respect somebody who has like a different view of yours and that your way of like wanting peace and stuff would not be actually applicable is um, I was trying to saying like, imagine you're fine in the modern times, like an old Viking drenner who's like, who needs to die in combat in his own mind to enter Valhalla. He's uh-huh. aging. He's you're not gonna like teach him new ideals now, and he just wants to fight you to death in a glorious way to like die, and he will be happy about this. And he begs you to like murder him violently, basically, and you just tell him no, like, and you leave him. That's like that's the more rude option than to actually murder him in his own mind. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. It's. That that feels underappreciated. I don't know. I mean, I, were people in the past less um, provincial in a sense, just because maybe they were used to interacting with other cultures? I guess all other cultures in the past tended to kill each other an awful lot. But I mean, like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's just this element of people, whenever there's that vast of a difference in what is you know, a qualia you can experience or a phenomenology, like maybe people just start seeing people who experience those things as less human, you know? Yeah. They shouldn't though. Like, I feel like the utility functions that we all run somewhere could be changed so much. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think I mean, that they need to just that you should understand that they can take a very different form across the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's that, um, I mean, I think this is just cliche at this point, but this, this story that, you know, if you look at some incomprehensibly horrible thing, like you want to believe that that's something that's entirely outside of the set of things that you could possibly do, you know, or like, you don't want to put yourself in the mindset of somebody who could do something like that. Yeah. So you say, no, nah, man, like that's not, like, that's just incomprehensible. I can't understand how somebody would do something like that. You know, I've heard, I don't quite remember where I've heard this from black bill on me might've been from Jordan Peterson, but that this is where some sorts of CP, uh, sorry, PTSD originate from war, where you end up doing a thing that you very deeply believed about yourself that you couldn't have done. So not from something uh. being done to you, but like, going in violently ending somebody so that you survive something that you really believe that you would not be able to do. And then you sort of form some schism in your mind about it. Yeah. I don't know if this um, is true. It's, I mean, it makes it, I don't, I don't know whether it's true either. So don't take anything about to say seriously, but it reminds me of a claim in, I think Sebastian Junger, Sebastian Junger's um, tribe where he's discussing that um, warriors in societies where war is accepted as just like something that happens or that, that is more commonplace or regular um, 
have so the claim is that they tend to have reduced incidents of PTSD just because like the person they imagine themselves being or you know that society exists in such a way that there's space for somebody having done that at some point whereas i think in the west and maybe the last 50 or 100 years especially but maybe before that um there's not any kind of room left for this there's new no no space for you know somebody to go and murder somebody anywhere it's it's very black and white there's also a thing that i learned recently about all this is that way too much of it comes to how i feel about it beforehand yeah personally to me and i think that does matter like you just said about i can't i don't see myself as somebody like this or something like that i've I've seen this only even like about physical pain i was thinking about it because for example if i'm in if i imagine going to the dentist and having a very painful procedure i'm going to stress about it and then when it happens like part of the whole problem of that procedure is me stressing and thinking about it ahead of time yeah and then during it i'm thinking like oh i'm the guy that this is happening to this sucks and it's really bad. But for example, if I'm like skateboarding, let's say, and I fall, I don't skateboard, but I as a kid, I remember falling on like my butt bone, which really hurts bad, but you don't expect it. So when you fall, you're not actually like mentally suffering as much because you're just in the moment with pain, which is just pain. It's not like good or bad because you haven't had time to process it as good or bad. So you're just there and it hurts and that's all there is. It's like kind of more neutral than. Yeah then you would think if I told you ahead of time that you would fall, then you would stress about it and make it way more negative than it actually is. But here's another example and sorry to make this dark, but so no, do it. When, uh, when my son like was diagnosed with leukemia for the first time, first he would like, he exhibited symptoms and we didn't know what it was. But then you start Googling them, you know, and as you're getting ready to see all the doctors and everything, you start like amping yourself up because if you have any sort of like capability with Google, you'll see that it's the probability is going up and up as he develops certain recognizable things. And then I really would start like amping myself up anxiously. And that was probably, I can now confidently say when I look back, that was the worst time of that whole period. was what I had done in my head as I was waiting for it and how badly I didn't want it to be. Like, I cannot describe the amount of, like, mental energy that was spent on, like, if I could tear reality with that energy, I would have to not make that happen. But then the second the doctor came to us and said, like, your son has leukemia, like, that all stopped. Huh. I didn't have any stress anymore my brain immediately stopped and went like, okay, that's what's happening now. And we're just like doing this now. Yeah. And that was it. I I mean, I had different like worries and everything over time and it took me a while to realize this. But when I sit back and remember those moments, I remember, wow, it really like just stopped being. And I had made it way worse than it was. And it was a, it was the worst thing ever, but in my head it was even worse. And that was like one of the white pills for me on reality that nothing was that bad. Yeah. Because things just are kind of like, even if he had died, I would have been, it would have been the worst thing ever. And I would be forever sad, but that's all I would be 
in some weird way. I don't know if you understand quite what I'm saying, but I would just be no, sad. No, I follow. I would just continue and be sad, and that would be it. There's like no bad and good to it. I would just be sad. Yeah, I know what you mean. If I imagine that sadness now, that's the worst. And I could amp myself up to feel really bad about it. And luckily, he's very fine now and a healthy boy. Yeah, I was I was going to mention that just just yes. in case anybody was yes. here on Tetrahooks. Thank you. Sorry to sorry to flip this conversation, but I was trying to make like a white bill, ultimate white bill that no pain that I ever experienced has been really bad, and that when they were bad, it was in my head mostly more than in reality. Yeah. But I wanted Good, to bring I, this I, one up because if somebody, if I didn't say something as bad as cancer and somebody would bring up something else while listening to this, like, yeah, but imagine if your child had cancer or something like that, you know? Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man. So what's, uh, are, do, do you identify as a stoic? No, not really. They're kind of grim and boring. Yeah. I don't, I, I'm okay. not too much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I, I see the distinction actually. Um, like seeing a limit to, you know, the extent to which sadness can occupy you. I don't know. Um, it seems like the Stoics don't actually look that far. They're just like, yeah, you're, you're going to be sad, deal with it, but not actually, maybe it's not that bad after all. Yeah. No, no. I think they're too grim. Like it's literally not but that bad. It just is. Maybe like Epicureans or like Buddhists are more right, but Stoics are not quite right. They're like too tragic and boring in my mind often. Yeah. Like life is, it, it is. I define a lot it, of it. That's like mo- the biggest white pill of my life where I just now more like just glide around kind of content because I'm like, hmm, yeah, I see it. Yeah, you, you seem like you're you have a lot of equanimity about you for uh for someone from the Balkans. So <laughs> maybe that's why I left. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Oh man. Honestly, after you talked to me, I mean I, I feel a little bit bad about that thread that I wrote about Russia making Oh, don't feel bad at all. I was laughing. Don't feel yeah, bad whatsoever. We laugh at each other constantly. <laughs> oh man, I don't know. There, there were some people who were like defending Serbia to me though, and I just, I wasn't kind to of them. <laughs> but if I, I if I've still, got a dispensation, <laughs> I saw because Lisa sent me, and we both laughed. So you should okay. feel fine. I, when I was growing up, I called all my friends using slurs for different nationalities from the Balkans, and we all talked to each other like that. My Muslim friends, yeah, okay. my Serbian friends, and my Croatian friends. I call them all using like the most offensive thing that I could come up with. Yeah. Oh, that, that feels good. It feels like, I mean, like if you can do that and, and like it's seen as affection or familiarity rather than, you know, like a deadly insult, that feels like a major win to me. Yeah. Man. So, um, it's like that, that covered a lot of territory and I honestly don't remember how we got from start to finish. Um, but do, do you have any closing thoughts about this? I mean, um, everything feels, I mean, it's very, all that is solid turning to air and I don't think people realize it. I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. It seemed like it was like that at the beginning of COVID too, but 
then things just kind of snap back to the the old way. So maybe we just end up there again. Maybe that's kind of an attractor. And hmm. but I guess the closing thoughts are mostly that just remember that these are very similar people who are going to die now, and it's not quite so clear who you should root for, who you should root against. That if you have ideals, that's fine, and I think the West should help. But just accept that you don't want some of them mostly to exist. Like, not in a mean way, but you just don't want some of these ideas to have to deal with. You don't want to have to deal with autocrats, with dangerous nuclear weapons being pointed at you. You don't want to deal with these things, and it's okay. You don't have to be angry or scared about it. Help Ukraine and let things that need to die, die respectfully. Really and appreciate you white pill, every, everything is fine, basically. Yeah. Really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for talking. You had yeah, mentioned it before, sure. but I wasn't sure like what I would talk about. But then I remembered I actually just like talking to you whenever since I met you in person, I that was confirmed. So then yeah, I was like, yeah. okay, yeah, I don't care actually. If whatever we talk about, it would be fine. No, that was I mean that was that was great, man. Okay, cool. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. Um hope you're hope you're staying sane out there. Like it's really easy to lose your shit when when something like this is happening, but um yeah, just be yeah, try to try to keep your head about you. Um and yeah, O'Neill, thanks once again, man. Yep, you're welcome.